Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. Uh, This is a 23-year-old male who was brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of vomiting and abdominal pain. Uh, But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Dr. Rachel Munn is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and EMS faculty here at the University of Arizona. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Vivian Ng is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the simulation fellowship director here at the University of Arizona. Hi, Vivian. Hi, glad to be back. And the candy man himself, Dr. Brian Drummond, is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine and our professor emeritus for our podcast. Hi, Brian. Hello, neighborino. <laughs> So the case, again, is a 23-year-old male brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of vomiting and abdominal pain. So his vital signs are a temperature of 37.0, his heart rate is 108, his blood pressure is 136 over 94, his respiratory rate is 18, and he's satting 97% on room air. Um, So these are probably the most normal vital signs I think we've ever had on this show, with the exception of a little bit of tachycardia and maybe the blood pressure is a little bit high. So this person comes in, they could really be a lot of stuff, but I think everybody's probably in agreement, not necessarily that concerned about this patient based on the vitals. Fair enough to say? Yes. Fair enough. All right. So as this patient is rolling down, you see that he's on the gurney and he is puking his guts out. As Rachel said before the recording, screaming into the vomit bag, going down the hall. And so now you're not running over there because you think that he's critical. You're running over there because if he keeps puking, then you're going to start puking and then it's going to start a whole puke cascade and you just need to cut this off. So as you're going over this patient's room who is actively just puking his guts out, Rachel, what are you considering as you're walking over when you see an otherwise normal looking 23 year old male who's just puking like crazy? I think the first thing I would probably try to notice is what is he puking up? Is it yellow, green, you know, food, clear fluid, or is it, you know, Frank blood? Those would, that kind of would put me on one of two separate pathways right off of the bat. 
but there are definitely a lot of other differentials to consider in someone like this, anything from like DKA, if this is a 23-year-old type 1 diabetic, to gastritis, pancreatitis, marijuana hyperemesis, obstructions. I mean, the list is long. Since Very we live in a college list. town, I would say alcoholic gastritis, hangover. I think the things that I wouldn't think about are like, triple A, mesenteric ischemia, you know, you think about, I think more once age and some of these things, you rule out some of those really bad abdominal catastrophes just on age alone. It's amazing, you know, abdominal pain vomiting in a 60 year old is a whole lot different than abdominal pain vomiting in a 23 year old. Um, the other thing I, you know, it's always the red herring, but you got to think of like talk stuff in, uh, you know, a 23 year old beyond just the common things, but maybe they got into something really crazy that's given them, you know, they're looking pukey sick, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I agree with the rest. Well, and this is definitely the time of year uh, where just driving around in Tucson, we see these beautiful white flowers uh, that are all over the highway, uh, which can be made into a delightful tea that will give you Lewis Carroll dreams. Uh, we've got Jimson weed that's pretty, na- uh, pretty abundant throughout uh, Arizona, uh, Southern Arizona, at least. And so some of those crazy things, the crazy talk stuff, you're definitely thinking, uh, probably more than anything because of age and situation. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. All right. Points to everybody. Do we get points every time we agree with you? Uh, not, <laughs> not every time, but usually. Yeah. So as we kind of go in and approach this patient, this guy is puking his guts out. Um, Who's taking a history and who's going to just order some stuff right off the bat? And if you're going to order, what are you going to order? Zofran. Zofran for Vivian, Rachel? After after confirming allergies to meds. Ooh, excellent job. Uh, 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 Rachel, what are you thinking? Zofran and fluids. Brian, you want to go outside the box as you are wont to do? Absolutely. This is a Haldol patient. I mean, Mm. if you're, 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 it's a two for one, right? If they're saying abdominal pain, they're writhing and they're vomiting, I'm going for Haldol. I wish I had Reperidol, I'd use that, but I would start with Haldol. And to be honest, if, if the, which is the bigger concern for the patient to me, it would be like, is it the vomiting versus the abdominal pain? Because if it's the abdominal pain and they're just like miserable writhing, maybe this is a kidney stone or I just can't examine them. I intend to start with like a hundred of fentanyl and just give that, chill them out in five minutes. Then I get my history and figure out what's really going on. But it just, right. you know, I think you kind of try to get what is bothering them most, but you can treat both at the same time. It's not unreasonable. Absolutely. The case, hopefully they got a line on this patient. Uh, you go to the, you go to the, uh, uh, to the um, Pixis and go get your Zofran or your Haldol and everything else. However, that's going to take a little bit to kick in. So I'm going to say uh, shame on you all uh, for not going for alcohol. Alcohol. Yes. Isopropyl alcohol is one of those ridiculous quick fixes that you get them. And this patient probably doesn't mind huffing a thing or two. You get them to huff a little isopropyl alcohol. And that can actually abort a good amount of vomiting. It's been in the anesthesia literature. It's now in the EM literature. Open up an alcohol swab, which is one of the more plentiful things we have in the emergency department. It's always within reach and have them start sniffing it. The way I usually describe Zofran or uh, even Haldol for vomiting to patients is, so this is really going to help in about 10, 15 minutes. But if you got one on deck, 
it's not going to stop that one. Uh, isopropyl alcohol can, you can just kind of abort that whole, you know, feeling that they're starting to get and maybe stop them from getting worse. So isopropyl alcohol all around, but now we get the patient to stop vomiting uh, because of my brilliant idea. And, uh, <laughs> you should score yourself up on points, Aaron. I should give myself more points. I'm having a, I'm having a very narcissistic day and I apologize for that. So I think uh, you should so- make that vomiting sound again. <laughs> <laughs> that one that one. That's from lots of practice. Um, so we start to get a history in this patient. He still feels kind of queasy. Uh, so Vivian, what are some of the, uh, very focused, very direct questions you're going to ask this patient because you don't care, uh, if he's got, uh, problems with his lymph system, or if he's got a family history of, um, you know, COPD or anything like that, like, what are you going to ask this guy to try to get the most high yield history as fast as possible? I would like to know if this young gentleman has any history of gastrointestinal issues. So anything like IBD, IBS, cyclic vomiting syndrome, maybe a history of diabetes to determine if he's got DKA. Um, Some of the big hitters to lead down why he's having some abdominal pain and vomiting. I'd want to know if he's had any surgical history. And then I would want to know if he's been binge drinking or drinking at all and any drug use. And if I only had three minutes, that's probably what I would hit. I think what Vivian gets out at the beginning is, you know, one of the most simple and high yield questions you can possibly ask, has this ever happened to you before? And if you ask that question consistently in real life, you will get a re- remarkable amount of information from just that one question. Have you ever had this happen before? Any other questions you want to add on that, Brian? Uh, I, I think those are the big things. I mean, I think surgeries in anyone with belly pain is to me a really big question to get out. So, you know, you get in that surgical history and then um, the other, you know, a younger person, I would probably ask just common conditions, kidney stones, you know, have you ever had kidney stones before? Um, you ever had, uh, someone, you know, any problems with your testicles, any problems with urination and go, go with the basic quick ones. Um, you know, and I think the ones that we don't ask for a lot of abdominal pain and vomiting, but, you know, have you traveled, have you been hospitalized, you on an antibiotic and, uh, any new foods or weird stuff that you've been exposed to or, you know, ingested. So those are just, you know, things in anyone who's vomiting and belly pain, I'll, I'll ask as well, just historically. Excellent. I mean, in today's day and age, I would also throw COVID exposure in there because we all know that COVID presents lots of different ways and vomiting and potentially diarrhea if he's having it is one of those symptoms. Great. Can you tell me about this COVID, Vivian? I haven't heard about it. Uh, it's this new virus <laughs> that people keep talking about. I don't know, something about a vaccine. All right, I'm giving you points off for a joke that is now going on 21 months old, okay? You're going to have to cut that out. It's COVID-19, and so that joke is at least two years old now. Two years old. You're losing, (laughs) so you lose two points. So, uh, Rachel, you go in to start examining this guy after you get his history. Uh, What are you looking for focally on this exam? How are you going to approach somebody who's puking with their belly exam, because the likely thing is if somebody has been throwing up so much that they're still puking on the EMS uh, gurney as they're coming in, their belly's probably going to hurt. And so finding abdominal tenderness isn't going to help you a a whole lot. How are you going to approach an exam on a patient like this? Sure. I think you want to start looking for some of the 
big overall exam pieces. So is this someone who looks really dehydrated? Are they, do they have dried mucous membranes? Um, are they pale, sweaty? Like, do they look sick otherwise? And then more focus for your abdominal exam. I think you're absolutely right. It is really hard to get a good exam on patients who are actively in a lot of pain or actively vomiting, sort of tensing up their muscles. They're usually laying on their side. So I think if you have a second to get some of your therapeutics on board before you really go mashing around on their abdomen, that can help. Otherwise, really, you're kind of looking for signs that I think that this is a surgical abdomen. So is it big distended taut? Is there rigidity? Is there what appears to be involuntary guarding? Some of those other findings that we'd look at. And if you can find a focal area of tenderness, more so than just generalized, that can help guide you towards or against some differentials as well. And I think doing a serial exam is perfectly reasonable on a patient like this, on a child, on anyone that you're having a tough exam on. But as we noted to, uh, at the beginning, his vital signs are okay. Um, and we'll talk about real quick his history and physical that he looks to be doing okay. And um, you can always come back and reevaluate him, uh, reevaluate him after you've gotten some of his symptoms under control. Um, I so just want to reemphasize that because we all work in a teaching hospital. And I think where we are, you send the medical student in first, then the resident, then the attending, if you're not all going in at the same time. And I think learners should appreciate that exams change. And I think the people on this panel would absolutely hit this guy up with therapeutics first to get an exam that's reasonable and interpretable. And that that exam will probably be different than what the medical student and the resident's getting. And that will change over time. Yeah. With these patients, there's really abdominal pain that's unexaminable and abdominal pain that's examinable. So if you have an unexaminable abdominal pain, that's right, well, it doesn't matter what you find on your exam. You know, the only thing you're going to get is a skin exam and see if you they're distended or have a scar on them, but that's it. If you, otherwise, you know, like you said, we learned this from the appendicitis literature. I mean, we used to say, oh, you can't give any pain medicines, you know, because you're going to change the exam and it's going to be horrible and no one will be able to diagnose appendicitis. And we're like, that's ridiculous. You actually get a better exam after opiates and you do a repeat exam on patients. So um, I think that as a literature is applied to basically all of our um, abdominal exams, because it helps sometimes a patient can localize it on the second or third time. Um, and they really start to know, oh yeah, that it is in my right lower quadrant, or it is in my, you know, epigastric area, which is very, you know, those are different workups. So having serial exams is super important. Yeah. And Brian notes, uh, that literature that, you know, you treat with pain meds for appendicitis, it will not change the exam. And I've definitely seen that over the years that you treat somebody with morphine or some kind of an opioid and they feel better. And then you go back and you push on their panic button in that right lower quadrant, right over McBurney's point, And it hurts all over again. Uh, but the one thing that really will change your exam, antibiotics. <laughs> if you've got something infectious, inflammatory, and you give antibiotics, you can really quell a lot of that. And I've seen, uh, this is certainly borne out in the literature, uh, but I've seen anecdotally things like appendicitis, uh, things like meningitis that was very frank, uh, change in a matter of 20 minutes by just giving a single dose of antibiotics. So don't be afraid of treating pain that you're going to mask their condition because you already know what they look like. And you're going to do, as we all alluded to serial exams 
and figure out, you know, how, if they're looking better or if they're looking worse. And for residents and medical students who might be listening to this, first of all, go listen to a better podcast. Okay. And then second, um, know that we all as attendings recognize that whatever exam you did is going to change. And so like we roll with it. If we're the first ones to see that patient, you might get a different exam. And if we're the last ones to see that patient, we're probably going to get a different exam. But for the people we're worried about, we go back and reevaluate them several times. And reassessment is one of the most useful tools that we have um, in our arsenal as emergency doctors is just to keep going back and looking at them again, uh, because a patient who remains uncomfortable despite all your maximal therapy is more concerning than a patient who came in looking like death and now they're looking better. So at the end of the ring down, uh, we've got a score of Brian Drummond in the lead with seven, Rachel Munn with five and Vivian with four. And we are going to move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So this is a 23-year-old male brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of vomiting and abdominal pain for the last three days. He has had non-bloody, non-bilious emesis and no diarrhea, fevers, dysuria, or hematuria. He's had similar episodes of pain and vomiting in the past several months that have self-resolved. He's had multiple ED visits in the past for similar issues when you look through his chart. No medical problems, no meds. He's allergic to bees because why not? Um, he denies drug use. He smokes, he vapes, uses alcohol on the weekends, and he works at Chiba Hut. I hope I'm painting a picture here for you. Uh, on physical exam, his temperature is 37.0. His heart rate is 108, blood pressure 136 over 94, respiratory rate 18, setting 97% on room air. In general, he's uncomfortable appearing and actively vomiting. His skin is diaphoretic. Uh, his HENT exam is normal. He's tachycardic with regular rhythm and two, uh, two plus distal pulses. Normal work of breathing. Abdomen is soft, non-distended, but diffusely tender without rebound or guarding. And his neuro exam is normal. So as we're kind of going through this, one thing I skipped over in the history, that's probably a really good question to ask each of you, and I'll let you re uh, respond in time, is um, how do you elicit a substance abuse history from a patient? Uh, because in this case, I think it makes a huge difference when you get a social history like we just gave, but how do you elicit a history like that to get it as accurate as possible in a way that the pa uh, patient is going to want to tell you what they're doing so that they recognize that you're caring for them instead of just doing that uh, first-year medical student H&P? I'm, I'm pretty blunt. Um, not, <laughs> that's what he said, but uh, Aaron's, your mouth is full, so you can't answer that one. <laughs> But I, uh, blunt I'll joke. Just go <laughs> it was a pun for this one. Uh, so anyway, I'll just ask, and you know, I kind of do a soft lead in, but don't beat around the bush with it. Um, and I just talked to, you know, I'm asking them other questions. So it's usually in allergies, meds, uh, you know, and for meds, I say, do you smoke at all? You know, chew, dip alcohol use, and then I'll say any drug use, IV or smoking or ingesting. And I leave it at that. And if they are, uh, you know, you get the vibe, like there's probably something there, 
then I'll say, look, I'm not looking to tell the police or anything that stays here, but it makes a big difference in how I can best treat you. Um, so I just try to, you know, offset them with that, but I don't go crazy. If they don't want to tell me, you know, whatever, I'm not going to fight the power on that. But a lot of people open up and are, if you just ask the question, I see now, yeah. I think maybe with the legalization of marijuana in multiple states, um, maybe with social media, maybe with just different things in the world today, people are a lot more forthcoming than five, 10, even 15 years ago when you would ask them like, oh, no, I would never do that. Now they're just kind of like, yeah, that's what I do. No big thing. I use the previous medical chart and their previous treatment pathway as a way to lead into that sometimes. Um, the, has this happened to you before? Does this feel similar to previous episodes is a good way to lead into that. And then it also helps me because if we know they were discharged the last time after a cocktail of some set of medications, that's probably what I'll start with. If they say, yeah, this is just like the last time I smoked pot. Um, I've been trying to quit, but not, and the last cocktail did work. And that's probably where I'll start my treatment, reserving some of the bigger guns for maybe a round two, you know, like the candy man, I, I do use haloperidol fairly freely in cases like uh, a cannabinoid hyperemesis, but it's sort of like birth control with women. Now, some people do smoke pot or eat edibles and don't think that it's a drug anymore. So they don't necessarily report it. So occasionally I have to ask them directly, but a lot of women don't think birth control is medication either. So in that sense, sometimes we are drying it out because we want a slightly more complete picture. And some people will forget to tell us that they smoked five joints a day. I am very similar to Drummond in being kind of just monotone and blunt about it. It usually just follows in line with my other questions. Um, are you allergic to any medications? Do you smoke? Do you drink alcohol daily or not daily? Do you use any drugs, including, and then I list off a handful. I feel like sometimes people are more likely to be honest when they feel like the questions you're asking them essentially mean nothing to you. Like I am just gathering the information that is so basic to me. I don't think anything of it. So that's my approach. Yeah, I think, I think I get specific too, based on the condition, right? So maybe it's a chest pain patient. I may ask specifically about cocaine use, but I may not ask about marijuana use as much, or maybe it's an infectious. And I'm, I really want to know if you're an IV drug user, like that's my most important thing. So I will specifically follow on if I feel that um, they haven't adequately answered it, or I, I don't know. And I just... I just want that information because it may change my treatment. And that's usually my approach as well is I will, you know, it's good to ask questions with a purpose. I mean, I think as emergency doctors, we're supposed to be doing focused history and physicals. And then you try to gather some other information to make sure you don't miss anything. But when you're asking about, you know, drug use and somebody who's coming in with a sprained ankle, you're checking boxes to fill out your chart. It doesn't, always matter as much, you can, uh, it can be an opportunity for an intervention, especially, you know, we're talking to people about smoking cessation and alcohol use, uh, drug rehab, you know, it can have its purposes, but I find that patients are more open to it when you kind of like all three of you explained, um, this is what I'm looking for. This is why I need to know. This is how it's going to help me take better care of you. Points all around everybody. I think it's a very difficult thing to take a history uh, like this when somebody's not feeling well. Uh, and just for everything that you have to do in the emergency department to uh, immediately endear yourself to somebody who's in one of the 
worst times of their life, certainly in their week. Um, and you're trying to get them to open up to you. There's a lot of art to it. It's part of what makes our job so fun. So, um, so now that we have this history, uh, it sure sounds like cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Um, so uh, some of the questions we asked related specifically to that, you know, some of the things that make it better. Um, I never forget, I had a patient when I was a resident, uh, when this was first starting to come out to be a thing, uh, with, uh, one of our, uh, attending extraordinaires, John Sackles, and the patient kept running out of the room and going into the bathroom, locking himself in there and turning on the hot showers and just trying to get himself feeling better through hot showers. Um, and that's something that I have started telling people you can try to do at home as you're starting to get out of this. Um, but what, what kind of medications are you looking at? What kind of treatments are you thinking about? How are you going to approach this patient to get them feeling better? I like what Vivian said earlier about asking, you know, what has worked for you before? So a lot of times patients know like, Hey, this has happened to me before. And the last time that this happened, I got something that starts with an H and some Benadryl and I you know, did really well. So I think starting there, um, otherwise sometimes Ofran, sometimes Haldol, I will admit that I personally do not have a very strict practice pattern regarding where I start with this. Points to Rachel for a great point. The same as you would ask, has this ever happened to you before? The next question, well, what, what did we do last time that fixed you and made you go home? Uh, and points to Vivian for being quoted by Rachel in such an eloquent statement. So, well, I, I think um, Rachel's point though there is really good because it's um, you know when more points to Rachel you're asking that question you're you're going to like what is the um, you know you're meeting the patient's expectations and we don't always talk about that but that is a huge thing if you can if they think they're going to get something and they know it works and you meet them. On, and you think that that will work too, and you've met their expectations, you may diffuse this case and make him better real fast, real soon. Versus you say, I know better patient, and I'm going off on my own, like, this is my cocktail that I will use for you. So I think that flexibility and being able to meet them is a super important point. And you also understand what they want when they're there. And if you disagree with it, then at least you already know it early on and aren't like, going to discharge them. And then all of a sudden here it comes. So I think that's a, a super point, Rachel. Yeah, I would agree with that because I would say that the majority of these patients don't want to be admitted. They're coming in with their acute problem. They're having pain and vomiting. They can't control at home with their hot showers. They need some pharmacotherapy to get them feeling better so they can go home and probably smoke more pot later. All right. So as these patients are coming in, uh, we have a good idea of what's going on. You look through his chart and you see, all right, he's been admitted for this, or he's been in the hospital for this before. Maybe he's been admitted for this before. Um, you ask him about it. You, has anyone ever told you that this might be what's going on? Yeah, they've told me it's because of the weed. Um, and as you're approaching these patients, you know, the nurse gets your IV, tech gets your IV. Do you want blood work? Do you want imaging on this patient? Is there anything, any diagnostics you need to perform on this patient that clinically seems to have cannabinoid hyperemesis? This is an otherwise healthy person, as you stated, no pathological history, no surgeries. I wouldn't. 
but I run on the minimalist side of this thing. If you don't have a reason to have major electrolyte abnormalities or have previous surgeries or, you know, anything where I would be concerned that you have an infectious cause, I think symptomatic treatment is adequate. Unless there are risk factors at baseline, I don't need to go hunting for things I don't want the answer to. The only thing I might be concerned about would be a hypokalemia from the excessive vomiting, but plenty of normal, healthy human beings walk around vomiting, have some hypokalemia. We resolve it on our own. Our kidneys are great at doing that. And you throw a little extra dietary supplement in there and fix it without having to check for that value. The one thing I might get would be an EKG for QTC prolongation to ensure that any QTC prolonging medications I choose to give will not put this guy into a cardiac arrhythmia. That might be the one thing. So you have two one things that you'll get an EKG and some, and a BMP. No, I wouldn't get a chemistry. Um, You know, sometimes I will, I like to get, I like to get lights for people that I'm worried about enough to put in an IV. And for this patient, sometimes I think about that might actually be helpful to, you know, if I end up admitting them saying like, Hey, look at how dry they are. Look at how much they're puking. Their K is 2.9. They're not going to be able to go home. Sometimes a little bit of that data can be helpful as you're selling an admission or as you're explaining to a patient why they don't need to be admitted. But I, I fully agree with Vivian that it doesn't need to be necessary. Um, but uh, Brian, what kind of things, if, if Vivian's a minimalist, you're an austere uh, provider, uh, <laughs> what kind of things uh, would make you um, actually order blood work or imaging on a patient that's presenting exactly like they have before? I think the the main thing would be a duration of symptoms. So, you know, to me, if this happened for two hours, I'm not worried. If this has been going on for five days and they're saying like, I haven't eaten, and I'll ask them, have you been able to eat anything or keep any liquids down? Those are times for a prolonged duration. And I say prolonged duration, probably more than 24 hours. If it's been 12 hours or less, I'm probably not going to get any labs. Um, but a prolonged duration, then I think, you know, as Vivian was alluding to, you worry about electrolyte abnormalities or maybe some pre-renal, you know, kidney dysfunction, or like you're saying, Aaron, you know, you want to sell them as an admission. If you think you're going to admit the patient, you know, everyone has to get labs to be admitted. I mean, it's the stupidest thing in the world, but we have to do it. Um, so anyway, those, are it may not be true, but it's true. (laughs) Right. It's, it's not like there's no evidence to say that we have to do it. It just, that's how the only way that they think our consultants, unfortunately, there's an expectation Uh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I would, I would challenge Vivian on uh, one thing, you know, with the QT prolongation agents, you actually look at the literature on which ones you worried about prolonging the QT. I'm actually not worried about any of them in a young, healthy person with no history of, of any sodium channel or arrhythmic issues. However, Uh, We talk about catering to our admission services. This is one of those things where I'm more catering towards the nursing staff who's administering the medications to ensure that we're meeting their needs, that there isn't a QTC prolongation issue. Good. Well, that's good. Because, you know, we talk about like Haldol and Droperidol and stuff. And Droperidol was taken off the market, right? Because of QT prolongation in a black box. But not look, particularly well-studied reasons, but yes. Exactly. Well, they were studied and shown not to be true. That's exactly right. And uh, you could argue that Zofran probably prolongs the QT just as much as Droperidol does. And so we will not get that much. Full, 
right? right? Which is not that much. So if you look at them now, if you're giving 16, you know, agents, yes, you should probably check an EKG. I used to check EKGs before and after droperidol for like 500 patients found no changes in my early career. And I stopped doing it because I was like, this yeah. Is and I'm the same. We had it when I was training as well. And we were required to check an EKG at the soonest possible moment before or after medication administration. So after did count, but they wanted one on record per hospital protocol. And I will say that I think some of the reasons why we, some of us will do an EKGs for resident training, because they're still learning right now. Can you give more than one QTC prolonging agent in the same patient close proximity with any changes in their EKG findings? And the usual answer is no, unless there's an underlying cardiac issue with the patient, but our residents are still taught that way, I think, to check it. So I agree. It's more to prove a point that it's not there more than anything. So the one thing that I will, and and again, we talk about directly asking because it affects your care. The one thing I will ask is, are you on methadone? Because methadone is a huge culprit in QT prolongation and, you know, droperidol by itself, Haldol by itself, Zofran by itself, no big deal. But you add it in with some methadone and that's the only time I've ever seen torsades. So definitely worth asking about. Um, And then imaging for this patient, uh, like let's say that this isn't the patient's 17th time back. Let's say that this is a patient who's, this is their second bounce back or, or this is their first bounce back or their second bounce back. They got labs the first time. Uh, you know, maybe they got labs the second time, not a whole lot's changed, but now it's their third time coming back in a week. Um, Rachel, I'll start with you. What would, would you get imaging on someone like that? Not so much because they've got this great exam that's concerning, or they've got, uh, you know, abnormal blood work or anything, but just, man, you keep coming back. Uh, would that make you want to get imaging? I'll be honest. Yes. If I'm seeing someone on their second, their third, fourth, whatever bounce back, I am significantly more likely to get imaging on those patients than if this is someone who I've, this is their first presentation or someone who this is their maybe third or fifth visit over months, you know, not within a week or two week time span. Um, So I definitely would be more likely to get imaging in that patient. Brian, Vivian, you agree? I agree. I think we're taught for, I think it's good practice for bounce backs that the next person who sees them has to overturn more stones to ensure that the catastrophes aren't there because this person could be brewing something from two days ago and is now representing. And we, it is our due diligence to ensure that the emergent causes for intervention are excluded. So I would, even though he's young as well. And I think the probability changes, right? So if they were imaged the first time and they come in the second time for the same, would I image them? My probability, I would say, would be less. If they weren't imaged the first time and come in the second time, I probably would be go up. If it was a female, I'd probably image more than if it was a male. You know, if there was a little bit of change in the presentation, I would probably image or something else was different. So I think all those shift my probability, but I don't think there's a hard and fast, like, what is you know, would I, or wouldn't I, um, you know, maybe it's been a while, maybe there's been five episodes, but something's changed and it's been a year later and he hasn't had an episode in a year. Now it's, maybe it's the same, but sometimes, right. Patients relate 
the only experience they have. This is like the only other time I vomited. And so I'm going to relate that to it um, where it may be something totally different. So uh, versus they're here all the time. That's those are two different things. I would like to add on the medication. So my medications is everything. I'm a synergistic man. And so I'm you're getting the kitchen sink. If, if I think you are truly a hyperemesis, you're going to get, you're going to get Haldol. You're going to get Reglan. Yes. You can give both of those together. You can get, I'm going to give them some Benadryl. I'm going to give them some magnesium. I'm going to give them some famotidine. I'm going to try a GI cocktail because I want like one swing to knock it out of the park. And if it's not, I'm not messing around with these patients. I'll admit them and I'll be like, we're done. Like, I don't want to play. I don't want to do the 18 hour serial exam one thing at a time. I think there's some benefits to synergy of medicines. That's, that's my, one of my philosophies of medicine. And I so, think oh, that, that multimodal it, therapy. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so, so I'm trying to hit multimodals because we don't know yeah. just because you're hyperemesis, maybe he was drinking, right? Vivian mm-hmm. said alcoholic gastritis. Maybe he's got some peptic ulcer disease. Maybe something else is going on. So maybe you notch it down just a little bit with each of those. Now they notice a significant difference and want to go home. So that's that's why I'm throwing all of those things at them. But see, when I look back at this patient's chart and when Dr. Drummond treated him last time, I'm going to have to throw the kitchen sink at him the next time because Brian's a candy man. <laughs> and while I also believe in multimodal therapy, I use the previous chart as my way to guide current therapy. So points to Brian for his efficiency uh, in really trying to get pain and symptoms controlled right now. Uh, but points down because just throwing everything you have at every single patient is not synergy. That's just throwing everything you have at every patient. But it's a practice style and you find your own. That's why we have different people on here with different opinions. You work in a residency uh, or you work in a hospital where you've got lots of different options of how you can do this. It's an art. It's not purely a science. And you can find your own uh, risk benefit ratio, uh, your own uh, place on the line between ultra conservative uh, and uh, super risk tolerant. Um, and figure out how you want to practice, what makes you sleep well at night. So one last question, uh, because we were talking about one of our, uh, one of our recent grads, uh, Dr. Aubrey Bethel, who is uh, Dr. B underscore emergency on Instagram and TikTok. If you have not checked that out, she has 16 and a half thousand followers, which is certainly more than this show has. Um, and, uh, I think, I think they're hilarious. Uh, but anyway, aside from that, she has one of the funniest stories I have ever heard about using one of the only treatments we haven't talked about yet, which is capsaicin cream. Um, and it's probably not appropriate for this podcast. So if you see Aubrey, ask her about it because it is hilarious. So have you all ever used capsaicin cream? Brian, yes. what's your experience with capsaicin? I'm not a big fan of it. I know it's been talked about, but it's probably the same experience that Aubrey had. Somehow it gets on a hand and then, you know, goes and then wanders elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, wandering hands, we know what patients wander to, but you know, I I think I've tried it, but the burning sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, my understanding of the mechanism is it's trying to basically overshoot the neurotransmitters to the point where you can't transmit pain anymore. And so in doing that, like they get pain on their belly 
and they're not necessarily comfortable and happy with what you put on their belly sometimes uh, in doing this. So that I, I've tried it a few times and I just, I have not had a positive patient interaction with it. So I, I'll tell you how to try it at home. Yeah. Gotta, I don't know who do dispenses it, to be honest. Um, there are things think- some salsa and then just touch your belly after salsa. Yeah. <laughs> I think you need to use rub ghost little, peppers though. Rub a little ghost pepper in your uh-huh. umbilicus. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. That's so at the end of the workup, uh, Dr. Drummond takes the lead, uh, continues with the lead with 18, Dr. Munn with 16. And we thank Dr. Ng for doing our uh, podcast uh, and being uh, the third, the third leg to the stool that makes this whole podcast work uh, after an exhausting uh, weekend of doing volunteer work and oral boards and everything else. So thank you so much, Vivian. But we're going to move on with Rachel and Brian to the dispo. During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. So we have Dr. Drummond and Dr. Munn uh, in the dispo right now, admitting and discharging this 23-year-old male who is brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of nausea and vomiting. Um, he is diagnosed with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Laboratory studies were obtained, just the couple that they asked for. So he's got electrolytes of uh, sodium of 133, a potassium of 2.8, a uh, chloride of 110, bicarb is 15, BUN creatinine is 25 and 1.3, and his glucose is 139. He's gotten some fluids. Uh, he's gotten some antiemetics. Uh, he's gotten Zofran. He's gotten uh, Reglan. He's gotten Haloperidol. He's gotten Brian's GI cocktail. And uh, Brian, I'm going to have uh, you start by admitting this patient to the hospital because in spite of your best efforts, uh, he continues to be nauseous. He's not so much vomiting now as he's kind of spitting into his emesis basin um, and continues to have abdominal pain. Uh, and he says, I can't go home, doc. I think I need to be admitted again. So let's sell your admission to the hospitalist. Hi, hey, this is, hi, this is Dr. Hospitalist. Hey, Dr. Hospitalist, it's Brian here in the ER. I have an OBS patient for you. Mm-hmm. I have um. 23-year-old guy with likely hyperemesis cannabinoid uh, syndrome. I've uh, he's had symptoms for about a couple of days, and now he's starting to get some electrolyte abnormalities. We've tried replacing him. I've given him a bunch of medicines. I've given him Haldol, Reglan, a GI cocktail, famotidine, three liters of fluid. I even gave him some D5 normal saline to try to stop some ketosis. Um, but his bicarb's 15, 2.8. He's just not getting better. Uh, still tachycardic in the one teens after uh, three liters. So I haven't been able to fix them over the last four to six hours here. Um, but maybe if you can keep them overnight, just keep the meds going. He seems symptomatically better. And I think his electrolytes will get replaced overnight and he should be good to go probably tomorrow. So I mean, I, I've had this guy before. We admitted him a week or two ago. He is, it's it's like pulling teeth to get him out of the hospital. Like he just sits here. 
and just soaks up Fenergan. And I, I would really prefer that you just try to tune him up in the emergency department and get him out. Okay. Do you have other thoughts that I should be, you know, choices of medicines that I should give him or endpoints to try to get him home? Or uh, I mean, did you do the capsaicin on his belly? I can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can do capsaicin. I can double down Haldol. I can give him a ketamine infusion if you want. There are other options that you think I should try or I mean, how I long can't... do you think I should go? I mean, he's, we've tried for four to six hours. I'm happy to keep going, but I just, you know, to have an endpoint would be kind of nice too. I know obviously he's been in the hospital for long periods of time before. So even though he may not want to be in and, and, you know, I don't admit a lot of patients, but this guy seems pretty tough. Uh, that's true. You don't admit hardly anyone to my service. Uh, um, well, I, I mean, can, can you get some imaging or something? Yeah, he had a CT scan that was uh, clear and his chest x-ray didn't show an infiltrator pneumothorax. So the CT was, you know, no appy, no kidney stones, anything else like that. So um, this seems functional. I, I wish I had, you know, it doesn't look like an inflammatory bowel patient. He's not a GI bleeder. Uh, you know, I wish I had a better option for him, but given his uh, joint history, I think the hyperemesis seems to be the number one. We've talked to him about quitting too. Okay. He seems to think it may be a good idea and he may switch to something else. I just, you know, he's not there yet, but okay. I'm sure your bedside manner would help him out. Uh, I highly doubt that. Uh, he didn't really care for me the last time I admitted him, but that's fine. I'll come down and admit him. Does he need an ortho consult for that joint problem that he has? <laughs> I aspirated all his joints and it, the fluid was clear. Well, it sounds like you're going to have a great day if you aspirated all those joints. So have a good one. Uh, I'll come down and see him in just a sec. So. Great. Wanted, Thanks, Dr. Hostelis. I wanted you to say when I'm like, can you get some imaging? I'm like, sure. What do you want? You know, <laughs> <laughs> what's going to, what do you want to be able to admit him? What's it going to take? <laughs> yeah. What's the, pick for tech, give and take. What do you, what's it going to take? I'll do anything that you want me to do to get this guy upstairs because he ain't going home. So I got five on it, Aaron. (laughs) You got five. (laughs) All right. So well done, Dr. Drummond. Uh, So now it's Dr. Munn's turn uh, to uh, send this patient home. This patient had the exact same workup, uh, probably less of a management uh, than Dr. Drummond's uh, kitchen sink, Uh, probably more focused, more thoughtful and, uh, you know, restrained approach to this hyperemesis patient. Um, and he says that he's, he's been able to drink a little bit. He's able to take, uh, take down some Mountain Dew and, uh, you know, a couple Cheetos. And so he, idea. he feels like he can probably go home. They were uh, hot so, Cheetos. No, no, no. Just regular. He's not good enough for hot Cheetos yet. Um, he feels like he can go home. Uh, so if you want to, uh, give this patient your discharge instructions, uh, at, on your, on his way out, um, let me hear it. Hey man, I am super happy that we were able to get you feeling better enough to eat and drink a little bit. Um, I just wanted to go over some things with you. I think one of the things that may have contributed to your symptoms today is something we call marijuana hyperemesis syndrome or cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Do you know anything about that? 
like I, they told me about this the last couple of times I came in, uh, but I don't think it's that like, cause I've stopped for like three days and it didn't get any better. And so like, you know, it, like it's supposed to, like, it helps calm me down and it keeps me from vomiting. Uh, cause like, that's what weed does. I hear you. And at some doses, we do think, or we do have evidence that marijuana can help with nausea and vomiting, but at higher doses or more frequent uses, it can actually do the opposite. And I really hate to be the bearer of bad news, but some people with this have to stop for weeks to months before we really see their symptoms getting better. So I know that's probably not the best news in the world to you, but I think it's important that you're aware of that. Does that make sense? That's a bummer. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, thanks for being a bad news bear. Um, but like, so what am I going to do to go home with, uh, like, what am I going to do if I'm still fit? Cause like, I still feel sick. I can just keep down some fluids, but I still feel terrible. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a kind of a few things that we can do for you at home. One, I can prescribe a medication called Zofran that dissolves under your tongue to help with some of the nausea. Some people have tried and gotten some relief with things like taking hot baths or showers some people have tried um, capsaicin cream. You can buy it over the counter at the pharmacy and kind of rub it on your abdomen if you're feeling sick. It doesn't work for everyone, but you can certainly give it a shot. Just remember to wash your hands after you've used it. Um, and staying hydrated is kind of really the most important thing. And I tell people small sips of water or Gatorade or some other electrolyte solution is going to be best for you. Don't go home and do something, you know, crazy, like pound a whole cheeseburger and fries that probably won't be good for your stomach. So small sips of water frequently try the nausea meds and some of the other things. And, you know, we're here 24 seven. If you get super sick again and need to come back, we'll, we'll see you at any time. All right. Well, like, do you think I should just like stay overnight? Like, just like, you know, I've had to stay before. Do you think like, wouldn't it feel better if I just stayed overnight, like just for a little bit? I will be very honest with you. Patients in the hospital do not get rest. You will have a nurse coming in to check your vital signs. People will be asking you for blood work, asking you pain scales. So I honestly think you will probably do better if you go home, try the things we talked about, try to get some sleep. All right. All right. I'll try to go sleep at home. So, okay. Well, thanks doc. Thanks for taking care of me. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Without even a second thought, that was fantastic of the patient who has the change of heart right at the end, doesn't really want to go home. Are you sure that is a perfect reason of why they would be more miserable in the hospital than not. So hands down, this win goes to Rachel Munn. Great job, Rachel. So uh, you win this. You win this month, and it is your turn for the art of medicine uh, to kind of uh, rant and talk about anything that you'd like. I, so maybe the we floor can have a discussion. I can get y'all's thoughts. So something I've been I've been struggling with recently is talking to patients about the COVID vaccine, um, and I've seen a lot of different people do it in a lot of different ways. And I personally maybe have had success once convincing someone who was unvaccinated that they wanted to get it. So I don't know. That's been my biggest frustration recently is 
how do I engage with these people who I have a really hard time understanding their logic or lack thereof? And how do you actually make a difference and convince anyone, anybody? I don't know. I want to start actually. Is that okay? Please. I've actually had more success in pediatrics um, on my P shifts than I have my adult shifts. And I think it's because the kids are coming in with um, cough and cold, can, you know, symptoms, whatever. And all the schools have all these parameters about testing and needing to have documented tests, a negative test before they can go back. And I asked them if, if everyone who's eligible in the family has been vaccinated. And sometimes I'll get yeses and sometimes I'll get no. And then I'll ask what the barrier is for the no. And what I found has worked a little bit better is asking them what the family plans to do if one of the adults gets COVID and there's three kids at home and someone else is working and they don't have childcare and all that kind of stuff. And so what is their plan? And asking them sort of to think through that. If a lot of the barriers have been, I don't know where to go get it. Um, I just don't have time, et cetera, et cetera. Well, are, is everyone else feeling okay? Is anyone having the same symptoms? What is, who's coming in and out of the house? Who's taking care of the kids? So let me ask you this question. What are you going to do if you are unlucky and get COVID and you get stuck and admitted, who's going to take care of your children or who's going to do X, Y, Z? That seems to have worked a little bit more. Um, I have had people ask me, well, but there's breakthrough infections. And then, so then we go into the data, right? Your, your chances of being hospitalized are significantly less, even with a breakthrough infection, you'll probably be okay at home with the symptoms and you can still manage your lifestyle and taking care of your children and your elderly parents, et cetera, et cetera. But the chances you'll be hospitalized and end up in the ICU are significantly lower. And I have been showing people the public health department website with some mobile clinics and, and giving them the URL and saying, hey, look, there's mobile clinics. It changes every day. You can find one that's close to you. Here are all the different places. Pharmacies are also open. And it's just a matter of carving out 15 minutes to go get it done. And I, I find that has been a little bit more successful on the pediatric side than the adult side. But I've been working in peds a little bit more lately. That's really excellent. And I'm in a languishing mode about this. And so I'll just ask them, you're not vaccinated. I'll say, why? And then I'll say something and I'll say, well, you should have gotten vaccinated, right? <laughs> this is not doctorly. This is not, but this is just frustration. I said, well, your decision has overtaxed the healthcare system and we are, we are overwhelmed and done. We are all frustrated and fed up with this. I said, the only job that you can do now is you can go tell all your friends and family to go get vaccinated. That's the only thing you can do to help. And if you don't do that's your only job. And if you don't do it, then this is on you as well. And, you know, I usually end up leaving the room. I, I, I don't have tolerance for it. And I know it's not doctorly. I know you can say I should be more sympathetic, but I'm not. This is different than someone who chooses to smoke. This is different than someone who does drugs because those are inflicting things to themselves, but these people are doing it to everyone else. And they have my, you know, our pediatricians are overwhelmed. The schools, you know, are dealing mm -hmm. with tons of emails and they have to, you know, all the hoops that they have to drive through. I mean, our hospitalists and ICU doctors are fed up. I mean, they're, they're seeing this and people just don't want to take responsibility. You know, if we didn't have social, we didn't have this when polio, everyone got the damn shot. Everyone did. There was no polio, like, let's have a long trial. Everyone got polio. And so I have very little sympathy for these people, nor have I tried to hard convince someone. Um, but everyone who comes in with a cold, I'm like, well, 
probably should go get vaccinated. Even if this, you know, if this is COVID or not, you should get vaccinated. And a lot of people actually say, you know, they're almost regretful. I would say 80 to 90% of the adults who have not been vaccinated, who come in with COVID are kind of like eyes down, you know, not wanting to look me in the I face. think that's absolutely true. I don't spend a lot of time on this. I think the residents, those who are passionate are spending more time than I am willing to spend because we're too busy on shift. Um, but I will tell you the other tactic I took and Aaron can comment on this one because I think we need more of these made is I did wear my vaccines cause adults shirts on a shift once and just left it that way and walked around and, and saw every patient with my vaccine causes adults shirt t-shirt on and just let it speak for itself. <laughs> but then I realized those who really needed to hear it, I was putting on enhanced precautions. So they didn't get to see my shirt as I was trying to, te- to treat them. <laughs> um, I've been frustrated, but I try to understand why people make decisions the way they do. And uh, one of the things that's kind of been, become apparent has been that there are people who are uh, uh, people who are just afraid and the information cycle that they are in is giving them information that is uh, just kind of promulgating that fear. And so when you're afraid, you make bad decisions. We all know as emergency doctors, when we panic, we make bad decisions. Um, And unfortunately, with some decisions, you don't get a second chance. Uh, But what I have tried to do when I talk to people is I ask them what they're afraid of. Uh, What is their concern with getting the vaccine? And often it's something that we've all heard. It's something uh, that is... um, you know, not backed up by evidence, but backed up by fear. I think the latest one right now is um, uh, Nicki Minaj's cousin got sterile. The swollen cause testicles. Because his, his testicles got swollen and that's on Twitter. And so great. But, you know. It's definitely just an STD. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more chance. I'm sorry, Nikki, if you're listening to this, but there's a greater chance that your cousin has, an, has epididymitis or chitis than that he got uh, sterile from the COVID vaccine. Um, but all it takes is to hear about that once. There is a point where I've just realized that uh, many of these people, confrontation is uh, not as well received as trying to get to the heart of what they're concerned about. And I was most effective with telling people um, that there are so many different exposures that you can have throughout your lifetime that you're not going to know in 30 years, if the COVID vaccine gave you cancer, or if the job that you worked at gave you cancer, or if 5G gave you cancer, or whatever it is. But if you've already decided that this thing is wrong, then you've hardened your heart against anything I'm going to say. I I can't fix everybody. Um, But I'm willing to talk to people that are willing to listen. And I'm hopeful that more and more people are willing to listen and they're willing to have compassionate people um, talk with them. Uh, and much like the rest of this panel, my compassion is run dry at times and you need a break. All of us need to take time outside of the hospital to do something with that kind of fills us back up because we are, we've been pouring ourselves out onto the communities that we work in for almost two years now. Uh, and it's exhausting. This job has always been exhausting, but it's even more so now. 
Uh, and so the frustration of misinformation and the frustration of people being so vehemently against what we're trying to do uh, has honestly passed with me. Uh, but every time you see another patient that's a healthy 40 year old that's getting in, uh, you know, moderately healthy 40 year old that's getting, getting intubated, it kind of comes back. Um, but all of these people are making decisions based out of fear. Um, and if you can address what the fear is, sometimes you can help. The incidents that actually started this rant in my own mind was I uh, asked a patient the other day in the ER, you know, why are you against getting a COVID vaccine? And they said back religious reasons. And I said, okay, in my head, that's not really one that is going to merit any discussion. And then as a follow-up question, I don't know why or what I was thinking, but I was just like, do you plan on getting a flu shot this year? And they said, yes. And I was so befuddled by this like compilation of reasoning, non-reasoning, that I kind of just gave up. Like my brain broke a little, nothing made sense anymore. Um, so brought it up here and then effectively passed on my rant to all of you, which was very pleasing to me. Thank you for allowing me to do that. It's something that we need to keep talking about until this becomes something that we all know how to deal with. I don't want to take the last word, but I do want to end it on a happy note. So I think everyone who's listening should look into themselves and figure out what it is that makes them happy and go do that. If that's a hike, if that's a bike ride, if that's hanging out with your friends in a safe manner, if that's going out to try a new restaurant, go do it. Because as Aaron says, healthcare workers, we're stressed out, but in order for us to maintain that balance and have that compassion for our colleagues and our patients, we got to be able to decompress ourselves. So for those residents and students who are out there listening Go figure out what that is and go do it this weekend because that will be a way for you to rejuvenate yourself and realize why you got in this game in the first place. The happiest thing that has happened to me in a while happened today. Uh, I got a literal case of Jenny's ice cream delivered to Ooh. my house. Yeah. And I've had Jenny's ice cream. <laughs> I don't know if everybody knows about Jenny's. It was a I do. Columbus born ice cream brand and it is the best argument it the best ice cream in the world. And I will argue with anybody about that. And I'm very pleased to have a whole case in my freezer. I may cut the original rant and just make this the rant because this is a lot happier. That's totally fine. Sorry, Uh, I didn't prepare a rant. I forgot. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, we hope you have a wonderful, uh, wonderful month. And we'll talk to you next month.